Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHH, your home for community radio. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. John Carl Casa makes the nonprofit world tick, or does his best to keep it ticking, which is a tall order at the moment. He lives in New Haven and serves as president and CEO of the statewide nonprofit alliance, which is in the middle of an existential battle. He also has some pretty interesting other jobs on different ends of the table, dealing with state budgets. He's here in the WNHH studio to tell us about that, and a special thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital providing support for today's program. Welcome, Giancarlo Casa. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Paul. Thank you. And uh, thanks for coming in to the radio station today. So the big issue right now is that nonprofits are fighting for their lives in Connecticut among federal budget cuts, a new tax bill that makes it allegedly less likely that people can donate to charities, a greater burden to meet, and um, big question marks on state contracts as um, as the state has more and more budget deficits to fill. So two weeks ago, you run a group called the Nonprofit Alliance. You held a forum in New Haven. You brought people who run not-for-profit agencies together, and you appealed to state lawmakers not to just keep cutting you guys as the answer to every budget fix. How'd that go? Um, it went well. It was one of a series of five meet- similar meetings that we had around the state. And we're going to get so close that Mike, you're almost touching it. Okay. We're going to... How's that? Okay. Um, <clears throat> it was a ser- one of a series of five similar regional meetings we had around the state. The idea was for our members, for nonprofit providers and others, to talk to the legislators from their district and to tell them how budget cuts and a series of budget cuts over the last few years has affected them. You know, the reaction has been supportive by people on both sides of the aisle. I think that legislators from both parties want to help the people in their districts. They want to uh, support nonprofits. Uh, because of the budget situations, that's often been difficult for them to do, uh, but, and they may want to do it in different ways. But I think that at base, uh, legislators in Connecticut do want to help the nonprofit community because it's so important to providing services on behalf of the state to the people that need it most. Well, Jean-Carl, in a minute, we're about to get in the weeds, which is that there's something we're going to need to explain to our viewers about what parts of the budget can be can be cut, what can't be, and why a special reason in Connecticut not-for-profits get hit the hardest. But if you first could just tell us a couple of examples of how a not-for-profit agency, let's say a group home or an agency that a helps people struggling with addiction. What has specifically happened to some of these not-for-profits because of the cuts that have come down over the last year or two as the state continually deals with budget deficits that have gotten as high as $2.5 billion? Yeah, it, the budget deficits have been high, and the prediction is that there are going to be more in the next couple of years. Um, what that has meant has been a series of budget cuts affecting programs that are provided by nonprofits in Connecticut, uh, not just human services programs, arts programs as well, which are, I know are important in this area. The, what's, what this has meant is it's really put nonprofits in a precarious position, especially looking at large shortfalls being predicted for the next few years. Because looking at the next three years, it's very hard to see how nonprofits are going to be able to continue to provide the kind of services that they have been providing to date. What we've done, we did a survey of about 40 of our members. Every one of them has said 
that demand has gone up in the last five years. What kind of members are these? You said that not-for-profits range the gamut. What, 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 when, who are these 40? We have um, human services providers, that the people who provide, say, behavioral health services. That uh, means if some kid's freaking out, they've got a mental health problem, and they're in school or home and act, need yeah. someone to talk to them or prescribe some kind of treatment. Well, all kinds of mental health yeah. facilities uh, and substance abuse treatment, for instance. Uh, there are walk-in clinics. There are places uh, that provide residential treatment, residential care. Uh, there are nonprofit providers who provide services both um, in terms of group homes but also in terms of daycare for um, folks with developmental disabilities. Uh, nonprofits provide homeless services. Uh, nonprofits provide arts and cultural services to people in Connecticut. And how many are represented by your um, agency? About 400. Wow, you represent 400 in Connecticut. And the uh, are you the largest voice for the not-for-profit community? We are the voice for the non-profit okay. community. Not just the largest, uh, you're the voice. We are uh, the product of a merger of two previous organizations. CAHS? No, uh, they are still in existence. Um, the Connecticut Community Providers Association was one, and the other was the Connecticut Association of Nonprofits. Okay, so you talked about those 40. Tell me a story about one or two. First of all, you said they all said the need has gone up. Have they all said that they have less money to work with, or some of them get more money? They've all said that they're having trouble making ends meet. Um, okay. We've had some places close. Um, there was how many? A, well, it's hard to know how many exactly, but I know, for instance, of one in the Hartford area that um, provided uh, services to families of formerly incarcerated and incarcerated people. Uh, part of the reason they closed was because of budget cuts. Uh, I think we had here in New Haven the crisis last week with the closure of the community, community action agency. And it's really just partly back open, and I think it's unclear whether it's going to survive yeah. after the heating season is over, uh, oil, the Mercy oil heating season. But it was not Tell me a story about one or two that how their work changed. Said one or two closed. Tell me about a specific agency that is doing a specific job with less and having to do more. Um, well, Oak Hill, for instance, is a very large developmental disabilities provider, and they run a number of group homes. And they have closed a couple, uh, which means people who are in those group homes have had to move. Uh, they've had to consolidate some of their care. And do fewer? Do they have fewer people watching each of the kids? Or I guess these aren't kids, are they? Are they adults? They're people of all different ages. And do they have fewer people watching them, and therefore not as close care? Or? Well, I think some some of it is because there are vacancies. Mm -hmm. um, but others, uh, because but they closed the homes because they just didn't feel like the funding that was coming in from the state was enough to. Keep I them do feel going. like that's one of the hidden ways that these budget debates affect real people. Because usually, you know, we read the articles, we do our stories, the politicians talk about it, and you're hearing about high-profile groups. But when I'm talking to people who aren't just day-to-day -day involved news, they talk about to me how they had a relative they've cared for who can not live independently who for years was at a group home in Connecticut. They felt did a good job, and now the person had moved farther away with fewer people taking care of the business. And it seems like that's how it's hitting people on the ground. Yeah, I mean, we read frequently about, for instance, the opioid crisis in Connecticut. We had over 1,000 people die from opioids last year. Um, as that has been going on, since 2013, substance abuse funding has been down about 30%. So I think From the state? yes. So I think that illustrates... Since uh, what year? Since 2013. Mm. Wow, just when that's happening. Yeah. 
Oh. Yeah, as the opioid use has gone up, the funding has gone down. Um, and I think that illustrates really uh, the kind of things that nonprofits find themselves up against in this environment. We are trying to send a message to uh, state legislators and state leaders that the services provided by nonprofits are essential and that they're necessary. All right, now what the legislators tell you, I'm sure, is that they just have no choice, there's no money. That is what they say. Um, we believe that um, nonprofit programs should be funded and treated as if they are fixed costs. Now, fixed but what costs, else would you cut, though? We'll get to the fixed cost argument, but what would you cut? Um, it's not my job to tell them what to cut. It's my, right, my but, job to discuss the needs that people right. have. But it is your job to help them find a way to do what you'd like them to do. Well, there are a variety of different things they can do. They can cut other kinds of programs. They can find other ways to raise revenue. There are a range of different Well, Razor Avenue, answers. that's the big issue now, Voices for Children, which is not another not-for-profit advocacy group. They think revenues are the big issue here. So when they're looking at solving the problems, they say that this idea that you can't raise marginal tax rates on, rates on the tax, wealthiest taxpayers or that you can increase fees like the governor suggested for highway tolls, electronic highway tolls, legalizing marijuana, although that wouldn't be immediate, that the, the governor even wants a tire tax, which is something new. Um, not that anyone, including the governor, believes that the only solution is raising revenues. You can't fix billion-dollar structural budget deficits with only revenue increases. The argument some in the not-for-profit community have made to the legislators is that this is not honest discussion, that revenues have to be on the table, even if it's politically difficult because people run for office calling you a tax and spender. Is that a position you're in? Is that, Or are you just saying, I'm just telling you, we're important, you got to find some way to do it? Well, one of the things we've talked about a lot the last couple of years is the way in which nonprofit providers can provide services to people um, in lieu of the state providing those services and in a much less expensive way. So many of our members uh, feel that, you know, until the state has availed itself of all the possibilities of providing services in other ways, for instance, using nonprofits and taking the savings and putting them back into social services, then once that is done, we can start talking about what the need is that remains, and if there is a need that remains, and the only way to fund them is through revenue, then go ahead and find the revenue. So, Giancarlo Casa, tell, give me an example of a service that the state does through the state government agency structure that can be done for not-for-profits. There are a series of behavioral health providers called local mental health authorities. There are 13 in the state. Seven of them now are run by nonprofits. Uh, six of them are run by the state. By and large, uh, they provide the same services. The nonprofits provide them for about $5,300 a year per person. Services provided by the state are over $12,000 per year per person. Now, state. what are these agencies called? What's the name of the one here? Uh, the one here is the Connecticut uh, Mental Health, I think CMHA. It's not CMHC. CMHC. It is CMHC. Yeah. One so Yale. Connecticut Mental Health Center. Yes. That's and they and they are the regional mental health. So they are private. They're private, not for profit. They're actually a great agency. I mean, in terms of my experience, people I know have gone through there. I think they do a good job, don't they? Yeah, they're a great agency. They are sort of a unique agency because the funding comes from different sources. I believe they have some state employees as part of that facility. And also Yale, private. because the research is done there. That's right. Are they part of your seven run by not-for-profits or six run by the state? They're part of the six. They're part of the six. Yeah. So they could be cheaper. 
Uh, we believe they can. Okay, so what makes it cheaper? Is it cheaper because they don't have unions, so therefore you're not paying people as well and you don't get as good workers doing the job? I think that's part of it. Um, but it's so not, why do we it's want that? The, it's not the whole story. Okay. Um, I think that the, um, you know, last year, for instance, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services um, put out an RFP to run the LMHA branches in Torrington. Uh, the providers that um, applied for that have said that they could provide, not only could they provide um, at the level, that they are funding at the level of the RFP, but that they could provide the funding or they could provide the services at less than the RFP provided or required. But was that because they pay their workers less because they don't have a union? Um, I, you know, that's part of it in some situations. But for instance, clinicians and behavioral health organizations are not paid, you know, at the lowest wage rates. Some of them are paid very well. Certainly people who are psychiatric nurses, people who are social workers and psychologists. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, it varies. You know, every organization is different. The benefit structure may be different. So g give me an example of something that saves money without just paying people less. I, I think that some of the... Uh, requirements for staffing are different. Um, I believe that the requirements for inspections are different between the two. Um, I, I don't know what the, how the requirements uh, match, for instance, for infrastructure in the buildings. I can tell you that um, our members say that when um, a person goes into a state facility and then walks into one of theirs, um, they say, wow, this is a lot nicer, a lot better. Mm. But does it cost less money to make it nicer? I mean, you're just talking about why the job. I'm not questioning any of your assumptions. One of your assumptions seems to be nonprofits know how to do it better than a state bureaucracy. What I'm asking about is the cost saving. Mm -hmm. So you get a nicer facility by spending less money? That just doesn't seem logical. It's possible. I'm just trying to understand it. It's because they're a very efficient organization. Okay. So there are is more efficiency. Yes. Because, I mean, often when we hear different rules for inspections or different rules for staffing requirements, Part of the reaction can be, well, that means they're not going to have enough staff. You're scrimping on staff or you're scrimping on inspections. But sometimes the other side is some of the requirements are one size fits all and outdated. In fact, it doesn't make you safer. It just makes you spend more money. Well, you know, we only have had one real state study uh, that kind of compared the quality of nonprofits with the quality of state services. And that was done in... Um, 2009 by the Program Review and Investigations Committee of the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. um, and what they found um, was that not only, uh, they found 40% fewer deficiencies of what they call deficiencies in the nonprofit facilities, um, and, that, and that those uh, deficiencies were um, remedied in a much higher rate, and that overall the um, quality ratings for nonprofits were at least as good, if not better, than the state facilities. That's so you're not saying, me saying that, the state. So you're saying not for profits spend less but get higher quality. Correct. But but part of it is labor savings, correct? Yes. And so you believe that this study would go against the argument that if you just spend less on people, you're trying to go cheap on the quality of the workers, and the care is going to be worse. Absolutely. Um, you know, absolutely, the quality has been shown to be at least as good as that of state facilities, if not better. So and, when, and that's the only state study that's been done of them. So at your forum two weeks ago at um, Science Park, there was a Republican lawmaker who had a, she has a background in social services herself, 
she said, let's do a lot of that. Let's offload a lot of state work onto, onto local not-for-profits. The answer she got, let's say from Tony Harp, the mayor of New Haven, she was on the radio here talking. She said, that all sounds good the first year because like you, she believes these agencies know how to do it better. But she said in her experience in 21 years at the Capitol, was that the first year the state tells you we're doing this because you're more efficient, so we'll get more bang from our buck. We're not going to just cut over time and have you be in a convenient way to cut. But that always, that becomes the place where they cut and cut and the and that it just becomes a way of not having to deal with the problems and making quality worse over time because, in fact, once it's offloaded to a private not-for-profit, it becomes easier to cut over time. You know, um, she's... The, the mayor is correct that those line items are cut time and time again because they're vulnerable. Uh, the state uh, facilities tend to be uh, a little more consistent in the funding that they've received. That's true. But what is not true is that the quality has gone down. Uh, I think the quality has been shown time But if you cut them, she's saying the first savings come from what you're arguing, that the not-for-profits can be more efficient and they're better at the job. But she said over time, inevitably then the savings become just cutting them and there's less they can do. And the state is not meeting its needs. Look, if you, if you save $1,000 on a given service or, uh, or facility in the first year, you've saved $1,000. But that $1,000 rolls forward into the future. So it's not just savings in the first year. I mean, you can talk about first-year impacts on a lot of things. If a building is built in New Haven and property taxes are paid, that bump happens in the first year, then it's yeah. built into You're the You're talking about the permits, not the taxes. No, I'm talking about the I taxes. I mean, the taxes you'll get every year, but the permits are one-time revenue is the one-time savings. But, but what I'm saying is you get that bump in your budget the first oh, year when the taxes come yeah. in, and then it's just part of your base. Yeah. And the savings work the same way. You get the savings the first year, yes, and that becomes part of the base of what it costs you to provide services. We're talking about the existential crisis facing not-for-profits in Connecticut. With the man who's taking the lead and trying to convince the state not to just throw not-for-profits overboard, his name is John Caracasa. He runs the Nonprofit Alliance, which represents 400 not-for-profits in Connecticut. So let's get back to the meat of what you've been talking about. 47% of the uh, not-for-profits are funded from 47% of the state budget that is not reserved for fixed costs, meaning there's 47% of the state budget that if we have to make a cut because of a deficit, you know, if the governor has to make an emergency rescission, let's say, that you can just cut there. There's 53% of the state budget, and tell me if I'm saying this right because this was your job, not mine, that you can't just cut because you have contractual obligations. It could be union contracts, it could be court orders, it could be legislative rules about what has to be set in stone. Am I correct in that? Well, it's bonded indebtedness, for instance, is a large part of that, and pension obligations, uh, pension liability. But there's more than that than 53% of the budget, right? Uh, no, all of that adds up to 53%. Those pensions? Are pensions, uh, unfunded, pensions, both teachers, remember the state pays for teachers as well as state employee retirements and other post-employment benefits. Um, there, there is payments on bonded indebtedness for when the state borrows in order to do buildings or infrastructure projects. Um, all of those things go into that 53%. Uh, the 47% that can be cut, uh, you know, there are many, many programs in that area. Uh, but the large ones that you're talking about are social services as provided by nonprofits, um, aid to municipalities, including municipal aid. Um, you're talking about higher education, other kinds of education. 
I mean, those are the things that are always on the table for cuts. Now, when you think about some of those things, and this is not to say that those, that those uh, entities or sectors uh, should be cut. Um, they provide very valuable services, and I'm not saying that at all. Um, but what nonprofits have a relatively limited range of options in order to fund their services if the state cuts. Um, charge people. They who don't have charge any, very they don't have any money. Right, they really That's why they charge. need the help in the first place. Exactly. If you're homeless, you're not going to be able to pay the, exactly. the bills of the homeless agency. Exactly, and they can't lay, levy taxes on their own. Um, they're not going to charge pe- most people that they have. They're not going to charge. There are some that, that serve people who get paid by, for whom the care is paid for by the, uh, insurance companies. Um, but by and large, no, they can't increase their charges. So you're arguing that there's a way to have the same rules applied to that 47% as to the rest of the budget so that you can't just cut it. How would that work in practice? Um, I think that what it is, it's, it's a mindset. It's a mindset that nonprofits have been cut to the bone and that because nonprofits have no choice, uh, because they can't charge others, because they can't raise their own taxes, the only thing they can do if they're continued to be cut is to reduce programs, perhaps close programs. Um, and people depend on those programs. You know, last year, uh, the state was without a budget for a long time. The Department of Developmental Services um, asked their providers to take furlough days. You had people, uh, we've heard stories from our members that provide those kinds of day services for folks with developmental disabilities. Um, their families didn't know what they were going to do. They tapped I know one family for months, their kid, they're the young adult that stayed home. And they were ending up yeah. having to provide the care and they go to work. And which, stuff. Which, you, which, you know, if you are able to do that, great. But there are some people, for instance, that's what I mean. Yeah, they vacation. got a good job. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, they, they can't stay on. Yeah, that's a tough one. So um, now the reason you know more about this than anybody is you are on the other side of the table, John Carl. Uh, so before you ran the, not pro- the Nonprofit Alliance, you were working in the state budget office for, uh, for Governor Dan Malloy. You were the. Um, were the, what were you, the Undersecretary of the Bar- Legislative Policy Affairs for the Office of Policy yes. and Management? Yes. That's a, so what did it look like on that side? Have you, have you seen the issue differently being on the side you are now? Like, what if you were now, what if you were two places at once? You're Hermione Granger and Harry Potter, okay? So you're John Carl Casa, you're running Nonprofit Alliance, you're saying, hey, state, you got to do this differently in how you budget. But you're also, John Carl Casa used to be the Undersecretary there at OPM. How would you be, reacting to what the other John Carl's telling you? I, I believe that I would, knowing what I know now, that I would agree that nonprofits should not be the ones to be cut. Well, what, would you cut of, what would you say? Because you'd be at the meetings every day saying, oh my God, what do we cut? Well, ben I mean, Barnes I, would be in there with you saying, you know, sweating bullets. doesn't really serve a purpose as to say what I personally would do. I'm here to represent. No, but I mean, what would it look like to you? You see, what, what would it look like to you when you listen to this John Carl make the case? I would say there's yet another need that the state has, um, and the state has a burgeoning amount of needs. Um, and, you know, the role of the state government and the state budgeting office um, and the role of an advocate on behalf of nonprofits are very different. Of My, course, that's understood. I'm just wondering what would it sound like to you now that you've been in both roles? If you could go back to that old job and you were hearing the head of the nonprofit alliance tell you that, besides thinking there's another need, how would you address it? How would you... Advocate I, I think what I would house. I think what I would say is that let's find other things to do whether it be if it's necessary to find revenues then let's look at the kind of revenues that 
um, would not harm the state economically. Uh, if it's uh, make cuts, let's find places uh, in other other than social services, for instance, or arts and culture. And in fact, the Malay administration has been spending eight years basically doing nothing but that, looking for thing, other things to do. We've done the sweeps. We get the like one-time revenues that hadn't been claimed or, or expenses that can be cut, taken off the books from departments. I can't imagine there's anything they haven't looked at, is there? I mean, tire well, tax, that's like throwing like, like your 90,000th attempt to find something. Well, you know, I, I can say that... Um, I can say I can say that you know it, first of all it would make me feel that I had listened better to the nonprofits when they'd come in and, and made their case. Um, I can say that it's very difficult for the state government to make these kinds of changes. It's not that it's easy. Uh, Secretary Barnes and the governor are not um, enjoying having to propose cuts. Sure. They sit. What what happens is you sit in a room. And you go line by line, program by program, and you make decisions based on the number that you have to hit. Um, I think what we're saying is we understand that you have to hit numbers, um, but there are people behind those numbers that when you cut nonprofits, you're not cutting facilities, you're not cutting services, you're cutting things that people need. And I think understanding, I wish I had understood better at that time, that the numbers uh, meant people. But did you really not understand that? Or was it that when you have a job that involves looking at this impossible numerical challenge day in and day out in an office, that it might just become understandably difficult to keep those faces in your mind sure. of the people I affected? Mean, look, at, I, I talk every day to people who provide services, and they, they talk about the kinds of things that people need. Uh, and it, it was in many ways an eye-opener for me. Really? Uh, I had to... You know, you see things from a different perspective. When I was working for state government, I was looking at a range of different things. I wasn't focusing necessarily on the kinds of services that nonprofits provide. I'm doing that now, and I see that that need is deep and that that need is wide. You also had a third role. Um, you worked for the Connecting Conference of Municipalities, mm-hmm. the, the lobbying and research agency for Connecticut cities and towns. Really good agency, a lot of good information. You worked there before the state government, correct? Right. And what was your job there? Um, I led, uh, in the last few years, I was there for over two decades, so I had a lot of different jobs, but the job I had last... Uh, Director of Public five, Policy and Advocacy. Yes, I led their advocacy efforts. And what did, what, how did your perspective look different there from either the perspective of social service, not-profit, um, advocate, or budgeteer? There is a real similarity in many ways between uh, what municipalities do and what nonprofits do. And that is they provide services at the local level, close to where the people live, in the community, so that the state doesn't have to. I mean, one of the things that um, I think folks value in a state like Connecticut is that services are provided so close to where the need is. Towns worry about that, cities worry about that, and nonprofits worry about that. I wanna ask you an unrelated question about nonprofits that, kind of has been a, a much debate here at the independent you're the nonprofit alliance you're not the not-for-profit alliance under law there's no such thing as a nonprofit, correct there's a not-for-profit because what the title means is what how you're legally set up what is your mission your mission is not to collect a profit and distribute earnings to shareholders it's to serve a public need not to make profit it doesn't mean that you can't make a profit 
So not some not-for-profits do generate profits, and some for-profit companies lose money. So they're non-profit, but they're for-profit. You see what I'm saying? I know it's, yeah, it's, I mean, yes. I had always learned inevitable. that I'm supposed to call you not-for-profits, but even the guy who taught me that at a long-term not-for-profit has now given up the coast and is calling it non-profit. Is it just like who and whom? Is it just that the language has just been taken over by how people use it rather than how stuffy grammarians and diction experts decide it should be spoken yeah. for clarity? <laughs> I think it's that. Um, I look at non, non... There are non-profits that have... Um, more revenues than expenditures in a given like Yale and the Haven Hospital is a not for profit. It's not a non profit. And they have more revenue than expenditures, I believe, in the last few years. They and like most metropolitan situation. print newspapers are, are, are for profit newspapers, but they're non profits in that they're losing money. Correct. But that's they were they were created in order to provide profits to the people that own them or the people that So how did it get called non profits? Why did that happen? Just uh, easier to speak? No, because the non profits exist to fulfill a mission. They don't exist to say uh, reward investors. That's why I thought they're called not for profit as opposed to non profit. Don't know. If okay, you don't, you don't want to you don't want to get any, into language. You well, want to talk about I just about don't is, know that there's really a, a difference in kind between the two. Whatever we call them, you want to make sure that we we try not to defund them, as we have Buzzer and, and John Carl Casas making that point here on Dateline New Haven and WNHH FM, your home for community radio, one of three point five FM, live streamed at newhavenandpin.org. We just got a, a few minutes left, but um, you got uh, you, we wanted to talk about the federal tax code change because while you're also battling with state budget cuts, these not for profits are also trying to raise more money from charitable donors. But there was just a federal tax plan passed that will mean a lot fewer people are going to be deducting their taxes. It's not necessarily a bad thing in the big picture, mm. right? It means that. Uh, it's not going to be so easy to go. They get a bigger automatic deduction that they don't need to itemize, correct? Correct. Are you seeing this in practice or is this just a theory? I think we don't know yet what the impact is going to be, but there's a real fear that donations will go down. I guess um, we'll find out soon because the act does affect this year's taxes, right? I think next year's. Oh, next or, year's. Or this, this year's earnings. So 2018's earnings. So we're not going to know for a whole year, right? Or we'll know sooner because we'll start seeing how it's coming in. I believe that's true. So, but has there been any word yet? No, I think that the fear is that because something like 90% of the people who have been itemizing will no longer be itemizing because they're getting a larger standard deduction, whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea. What it means is that um, the deductions they made for charitable donations, they won't be itemizing anymore. People who itemize generally um, contribute to charities at about twice the rate as people who don't. Oh, wow. Um, now, there's a lot of different reasons for that. Part of it has to do um, you know, with the nature of their... their and then income. how does that work to total dollars? So if those 90% of the people who no longer will be itemizing will be giving less money to charity, do they in some represent 90% of the giving or do the higher income people give so many more in total dollars? Or do they give less of their percentage I, I, of their income? Look, many um, nonprofits rely on donors who have good incomes and many of those folks at higher incomes are going to continue to itemize uh, but we don't know overall what that impact is going to be is there a strategy that the nonprofit alliance is undertaking to try to deal with the expected or feared loss of con charitable contributions in the wake of the tax reform well i think what we and other associations like us around the country are doing is really telling our membership to kind of sharpen their uh pencils and take another look at their at their fundraising activities and really focus more on them. 
you know, I think another aspect of the federal tax changes that doesn't get talked about but should um, is the fact that uh, there's going to be massive deficits in the out years. You know, I think that the deficit caused by the uh, tax changes are something like a trillion dollars or a trillion yeah, and a half dollars. Yeah. And you've already seen leaders in Congress say, well, let's, you know, let's tackle some of these social programs. Well, what that means is there's going to be less money to take care of people in need. That's going to be more demand on nonprofits who are going to be uh, stretched farther and farther in their efforts to provide the services. The, uh, when the first George Bush was elected president, he had a plan of a thousand points of light, which is that we're no longer going to have government be the main solver of social problems. We're going to rely on these charitable donations and not-for-profits. Part of the criticism of the time was that that's at government abdicating its role. I know that you have to deal, John Carl Casa, with real life and today and tomorrow and fighting budget cuts, making the argument to move to contracts and not-for-profits, nonprofits, rather than uh, having, you know, as a way to save the state money but keep the services going looking for ways to get around the tax reform changes or to deal with them so that people will keep the charitable giving up. But do you think long-term that it began with thousands of points of light, that it's a, a losing game to not just have society make sure that government tackles social problems by taxing people enough and spending that money well? I think the government and nonprofits can have different but appropriate roles in providing services. Uh, if you think about the uh, government is setting the setting the goals as overseeing the way in which the service is provided. That's an appropriate role for government, and it should play that. Nonprofits can provide the services closer. They can provide them in the community. We believe they can provide them less expensively and, and in a higher quality. All right. Well, I've learned a lot in just 33 minutes from Giancarlo Casa. Thanks a lot for making the time. Thank Giancarlo you. Casa, for coming on to WNHH Radio's Dateline New Haven program. A lot to talk about, a lot to follow as this uh, legislative session goes on. And, and nonprofits are fighting for their lives and for our families' lives. Yes, they are. We're doing it every day. So good luck in the trenches. Thank you. Anything you want our listeners to do now that they've heard you talk? Uh, if you can talk to your legislators, send an email, uh, tell them to support the programs provided by nonprofits, that that is not an area where state leaders should look to come. All right. Also, thanks for listening today, and thanks to Yale New Haven Hospital for providing support for today's program. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic Experience, performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now, we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. 